You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 29th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Kalispera to all of our listeners in Greece and the surrounding islands. I wonder if you pronounce that properly. We'll find out. I think my best has been like, I don't know, you had to put a percentage English. on it, I think like 60. English. <laughs> <laughs> barely. Only barely. All right, July 2nd. Yes, July 2nd. So July 2nd, we mark the passing of Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy. He succumbed to bronchitis on this day in 1843. They haven't huh? created a cure for bronchitis via homeopathy yet, but I'm sure they've done it now. Using spittle from Hahnemann's lungs, actually, that's been yeah reduced and you know, diluted spittle, over and over again. Spittleus lungus, yes, that's the that's the official name of the uh, of the fraction of a atom that's left in the solution yeah. to cure you of your bronchitis. Yeah, what, what homeopaths he- should do is they should get like this: find the sickest person in the world, and mm-hmm. then do like a homeopath. Mr. Homeopathic, Burns. Yeah, preparation of them. You know, like, just yeah. take a piece of them and dilute it a million times. I wonder what Hahnemann would think of his legacy. Oh, he'd be thrilled. Yeah, I think he would be. From what I've read a little bit about him in his history, he, he's always been, he was always very suspicious of what was modern medicine at the time. But not, look, rightfully so, because a lot of things that was being passed off as medicine at the time was more likely to hurt you mm-hmm. than, yeah. than help you. But at the same time, he would go off on... Uh, and say a lot of a lot of same things that you hear a lot of uh, alternative medical practitioners today say. It's kind of using the same language and stuff. Did you know he thought at one point that many of the diseases of the world were caused by coffee? <laughs> wow. Um, no. Yep. I Why? Think it's quite. I think it's quite the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> what was now his reasoning? Everyone drinks it. Everyone gets sick. <laughs> Around the start of the 19th century, Hahnemann developed a theory propounded in his 1803 essay on the effects of coffee from original observations. Uh, It just goes on to say that he later abandoned that theory in favor of the theory that disease is caused by Sora, P-S-O-R-A. Yes, miasmas. Sora what? Mm. (laughs) Sora, Sora bones. Sora disease. (laughs) Uh, Which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but that's like a vitalistic uh, notion. Oh, it's totally vitalistic, yep. Magical energy. Yeah, that's Magical right. energy, yep. Essence. Problem with your essence. So you've got to give you the essence of something else. Even though you, you, know, you dilute it out of existence, the essence is still there. It's magic. It's all magic. Mm-hmm. Pure magic. So there you have it. So Hahnemann on this rest, day. He pe- rest in peace. Well, earlier this week on Tuesday, on Tuesday, June 28th, was another special day, Evan. You're going to tell that's us right. about that's right. One cannot mention this special day without going back a couple months and noting that March 14th, or on the calendar, 314, which is known as Pi Day because of its resemblance to the first three digits in the decimal expansion of the number Pi. And Pi is defined as the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. But according to physicist Michael Hartle, the true circle constant is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its radius, not to its diameter. And this number is called tau, and it's equal to 2 times pi, or 
as if you extend it out to its decimals, 6.28, which on the calendar is June 28th, hence Tau Day. Tau Day, right. So why do we care? (laughs) (laughs) It's not to be confused with Towel Day, the day we celebrate Douglas Adams. Just put it out there in case people are confused by our accents. Well, (laughs) um, (laughs) there are... Uh, physicists, mathematicians, and others in the scientific community that are looking to basically replace the notion of pi with the notion of tau because they feel that it's easier, makes a lot more common sense, and easier for you know kids to, to learn as they're going through their geometry, trigonometry classes, yeah. and, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, obviously, the constants are the same thing, right? The, uh, tau is twice pi. But the, the, it makes a difference in calculations whether or not you have to account for, you know, make that adjustment to pi. So in some applications, it's easier to use tau because you yeah, avoid I- having to constantly, you know, multiply by the factor of two. But engineers, from what I from reading the comments, at least to this article, seem to prefer pi because you they are often dealing with uh, diameters. Right, they you, like if you're measuring a pipe, it's easier to measure the diameter of a pipe than the radius. Of course, you can just divide by two and you get the radius. So it, you know, it all, it's all it's all it all seems to be the same to me. In the end, it's just a matter of uh, the it's, so for some applications, the formulas will be a little bit simpler if you use tau. For others, they'll be a little bit simpler if you use pi. But what, what's interesting is how emotional and, oh, and yeah. invested people get in this debate. The comments are great. Just, yeah. just, just oh, skip yeah. the article and just read the comments. They're, they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Everything and more you want to learn about Pi, Tau, and, I know. and it's, other in things my, having to do with In circles. my book, you know, I think, well, can't, can't we all just get along, right? But uh, in, in my book, it's, it's all good because anything that, anything that promotes, you know, an understanding or interest or just promoting math, is great, you know. Just so that's fine. Let them duke it out. Let more people read about it. Let more people learn about it. That's fine. I don't care what really what happens. It's just great that it's. Uh, I'm reading a news item about math, and people are passionate about it. And mathematicians and, uh, really are, though the I think the worst when it comes to online arguments like that. Because I mean, the it's like quite the a other, blanket statement. Well, you know, when I when I think of never ending internet argument. Uh, I, I think of two. One would be uh, Joel versus Mike, and the other would be one equals point nine 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 nine. Oh yes, oh, and and you know obviously mathematicians aren't responsible for the MST three K argument, but yeah, the one equals point nine. How do you say that? Point nine to infinity, basically, with a slash over the top of the nine. There's a word for the slash over the top. I don't know. Some Uh, mathematicians can write in and yell at me for not getting it, (laughs) but they, yeah, they. God, you just just post that sometime, just in the middle of a like a forum thread about anything, and Mm -hmm. it'll explode with mathematicians. (laughs) Clearly, it does equal one. But uh, I'm, glad, just, I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that, so that we can have a bunch of yes. angry people write in. <laughs> it's just yeah. not aesthetic. People don't like the aesthetic of thinking that point nine 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 to infinity equals one, but it clearly does. And there's a proof for it. But more importantly, who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> You're about to find shit. out. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Wait, I think we just got our first email. I see it. Oh, boy. <laughs> and anyone who disagrees with me is objectively wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing about like the, the Tau Pi debate. You know, there are, there are certain things in science and, and systems like math where you just make arbitrary choices. No one is right or another one is wrong. You know, all the symbolism that we use and the particular way that we – you know, do formulas and whatnot. There's a, there are some arbitrary choices in there, like whether or not you, you know, divide by the radius or the diameter. They're both right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a matter of form. But it, it, yeah, it is funny how well people get in, invested. Yeah, but in Steve, that. I mean, but a good argument. Some people argue that one or the other would facilitate learning and make it easier to actually learn these concepts. And that that to me, that's a good argument. That's a yeah, good prove it. Choose. Yeah. Right. Well, that's I, it. That's I it. doubt it. I mean, I think that. I don't think that pi is inhibiting anybody from learning geometry. Did you go to the Tau Manifesto website? Yes, Michael I Hartle's did. website, and he gives you some very, I think, pretty clear diagrams to follow, and uh, explaining how Tau is. Uh, I think he makes a graceful argument about how Tau it makes for a better learning experience when you're first learning about circumference, area, and so forth. Well. Yeah, but obviously there's no objective data to back that up. No. Again, it's it comes a, it comes down to aesthetics. It works either way. And I think the concepts are the same either way. All right, well, let's go on. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us how scientists have managed to measure the body temperatures of dinosaurs. Yeah, it's been uh, an interesting... Rectal thermometer. <laughs> a very old rectal thermometer. Sorry, oh, I just had to get the joke in before okay. you even started. Thanks for getting it over with early. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Um, Go on. Right up, okay. right up the Thank KT you. boundary. Go ahead. Oh, nice. Well, th- there's been an interesting development in the, this whole cold-blooded, warm-blooded dinosaur debate, uh, if you're even aware of it. Uh, it's a brand-new method has been developed to reveal the most accurate body temperature of dinosaurs to date. Now, the results show that some dinosaurs, at least, were as warm-blooded as many modern mammals are, um, but they were cooler than birds, the data shows. And, but all, and all of this, though, is accurate within one or two degrees Celsius. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't really go to, into any detail, though, how they actually determined that, that level of accuracy. I assume they, they did some of these tests on animals that they know what the temperatures are. But, um, but these are, these are, this was led by researchers at California Institute of Technology, uh, especially Robert Eagle. Uh, they used the teeth of sauropods like Brachiosaurus and uh, Camarasaurus uh, to determine that they were in fact warmer than crocodiles and alligators, both uh, extant and extinct. Their temperatures were, um, let's see, 38 C and 101 uh, Fahrenheit for the Brachiosaurus, and the other dinosaurs was uh, 36 C and 96 uh, Fahrenheit. So kind of warm. Um, so you would think after hearing that, oh, this resolves the debate, right? I mean, doesn't this mean that dinos were, were warm-blooded then? And well, the answer, of course, is no. It's as we often find in science, obvious conclusions aren't necessarily correct, and things often get more complicated when you, as you look into the details. We see that so often. So for a little background, it's kind of funny. I was looking, doing research, I was looking at some of the old depictions of dinosaurs, and you see these really slow, kind of plodding, dumb animals, typical um, of what you'd expect, really, from just a big, cold-blooded lizard. But over the years, though, this, this conception has changed as we learn more about the actual lifestyles of dinosaurs. And this is, uh, of course, exemplified by the swift, smart velociraptors that you, that we, we've all seen in Jurassic Park. And, and, uh, so many, many scientists now think that dinosaurs were, in fact, probably warm-blooded. But the evidence to really prove it, though, has been, is often contradictory. And as you can imagine, it's hard. 
I mean, I mean, how the hell do you accurately determine the internal temperature of extinct fossilized animals? Many scientists thought, hey, this is impossible. I mean, I, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't possibly imagine how it could be done. Essentially, they have done it now. Uh, so what's been described is essentially, somebody described this as essentially putting a thermometer under an extinct animal's tongue. And in a way, that's kind of what they did. Uh, they did it by examining the different amounts of, um, of different types of carbon-13 and oxygen-18 in the enamel of the, of the teeth. So the more, the lower the temperature, uh, the more that these elements will, will be bound together. So, uh, and this is called clumped isotope technique. The clumped isotope technique kind of makes sense. It turns, so it turns out, therefore, that body temperature has a direct effect on the amount of these elements. And this is actually, this is obviously a great technique because thermodynamics is thermodynamics. So, you know, it's the same today as it was millions of years ago. Things aren't changing um, unless you uh, ascribe to the theory that scientific laws are not immutable. Uh, some do. <laughs> but so, uh, so, all right. So back to the, the resolution of the debate. You know, it may seem obvious that uh, since they were so warm, they must have been warm-blooded, right? I mean, it kind of makes sense. But it's, like I said, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, the lead researcher, Robert Eagle, he, he's quoted as saying that um, our analysis really allows us to rule out that they could have been cold, like crocodiles, for example. This doesn't necessarily mean, though, that these large dinosaurs had high metabolisms like mammals and birds. And that's, that's really the crux of this thing. You know, that's because the two dinosaurs that were studied were really huge. I mean, these were like, um, I think the Brachiosaurus was 40 tons and the uh, Camarasaurus was like 15 tons. So these are these are really gargantuan animals, and uh, so this makes them. I, I haven't, I hadn't heard this term before. They they were gigantotherms, uh, which uh, which means that their huge body mass actually helps them retain a lot of the heat that their body produces. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Plus, also, if you're cold blooded, it doesn't mean that your body temperature is cold. It means that it's just whatever the ambient temperature is. Right. So, and if right. you, so what if you're a cold blooded animal living in the tropics? You're going to be warm, right? Right, so that makes me think. What you know? Why you know? Perhaps you know. Maybe they had some sort of weird hybrid metabolism. I guess that's possible. Something that maybe was in between somehow. But I mean, couldn't gigantotherms be cold-blooded? Uh, and just you know, obviously, it would take a long time to heat your body up. But once you did that, the uh, gigantothermism comes into play, or whatever. Then you would kind of maintain that that high body heat and only lose a little bit over the night. So perhaps you know. Maybe they could have been uh, cold-blooded in a sense, but they, I mean, it seems obvious to me, and maybe this is just you know silly. And when you, if you really knew this stuff inside out, so one of the the ways to resolve this obviously is you got to look at some of these smaller these smaller dinosaurs because they they were just looking at the big guys, some of the big guys. So and that's really what their plan is. They're going to look at some of the smaller dinosaurs and see what their temperatures were. And uh, so either way, I, th- I suspect this debate will last a little while, but this is actually a really interesting uh, technique that they developed, and it's amazing how accurate they could they could be just by looking at the teeth. It's amazing what you discover. Yeah, you know, that is at, cool. Looking at teeth, oh, yeah, we could find out what the body temperature is. It's fascinating stuff. But when you think about it, why does – you know, metabolism have to be bimodal. Why just? Why would there just be cold-blooded and warm-blooded? Why couldn't there be something in between? Right. And if it's a long time ago, who who knows? Um, I'm just hoping that that the information is somehow there in the fossils that could really let us know that that yeah, this really was this uh, uh, this other way, this other type of metabolism that existed. But I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, geez, just you know, bones. It's going to be hard. Yeah. But hey, yeah. you know, they thought this was impossible to get this far. So who knows what. What information is buried deep in that we, the new techniques in the future may discover? 
Right. It kind of reminds me of the rings in a, a tree when they cut it down, you know? Dendrochronology. Why? <laughs> what do you mean, why? <laughs> yeah, what do you mean? What kind of it's question is that? Because there's information inside the tree, you know? Like you could. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're right, Jay. No, you're right. Yep. And that from that po- angle, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I was just wondering what your angle is. It kind of reminds me when somebody gets their arm cut off. <laughs> uh, have you guys heard about the study where um, they demonstrated that a large magnetic field could increase blood flow? Yes, yes but a very large magnetic field. Yeah. Yeah, and so, possibly to our detriment. How large is it? So, th- Well, this is, I think, the gets the, the prize for the most emailed news item in the last week. Because, you know, you talk, ever you... Uh, combine the concepts of using a magnet to affect blood flow that plays into the hands of you know every uh, quack magnet device that anyone's ever tried to sell for centuries dubious mm-hmm. yeah with dubious health claims so let me tell you what the study actually is it actually doesn't show anything that has any clinical applications what the researchers did was uh, look at the flow of blood through a tube uh, a tube that is specifically used to measure viscosity, so it's convenient. You know, the tube is actually measuring the viscosity, and that's um, so they just applied an external magnetic field to that tube, you know, with donated blood in it. And the the power of the magnetic field that they were applying was 1.3 Tesla, which is extremely powerful. That's a that's a, about how powerful the an average MRI magnet is. So that's getting up there. And what they found was that after one minute of applying the magnetic field, the viscosity of the blood in the tube decreased by 20 to 30%. They ascribed this decrease in viscosity to the uh, red blood cells in the blood clumping together like in a little chain. And therefore, they have less surface area because, you know, if you have two surfaces touching each other, that's less surface area exposed to the outside and also they said that the the blood cells tended to flow down the middle of the tube more and not rub up against the side of the tube so that decreased the viscosity the other bit is that they had to apply the magnetic field in the direction of the flow of the blood so that the tube was was parallel to the lines of force of the magnet so all that's fine and good. It, it was a proof of concept study. You know what would happen if you applied a magnetic field to to blood cells. The problem was in the reporting. You know, in, in addition from these researchers, you know, the things the researchers themselves were saying, as well as the the, the media reporting, and we, even if you, there's the range of the the Daily Mail, which of course was the most sensationalistic, but even up to Science Magazine, which is professional publications, generally very good. They they all sort of put the same spin on it that this potentially could be an application that could reduce the risk of heart attacks and strokes. But there's so many problems in trying to do that. Uh, there's actually two kinds of problems with this study. One is a theoretical one. The other is, even if it is true, applying it to a clinical claim. So I, I was really surprised that the Science Magazine report actually mentioned that the the uh, magnetic field may be having its effect due to the hemoglobin in the blood, which is 
almost certainly not the case. I mean, I think that the this, and that's the claim, right? If you ask like your average mall, you know, refrigerator refrigerator magnet salesman who's telling you that it's going to improve your wound healing and to reduce your pain and arthritis. And you ask, well, how does it work? They'll give you some hand-waving explanation. You know, almost all the time it, it includes, well, it improves blood flow because the magnetic field attracts the hemoglobin in the blood. Right, right? something about the iron in the blood. Yeah, the hemoglobin yeah. has iron in it. Yeah. <laughs> There you go, right? Iron Iron is always ferromagnetic, so therefore... (laughs) Right. The Science Magazine article actually used the analogy of like iron filings lining up in a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. That's disappointing. So, you know, as Rebecca and Evan are saying, the the iron in hemoglobin is non-ferromagnetic. Um, I actually you know, looked into that a little bit further. I wanted to find, well, what are the magnetic properties of hemoglobin? And I found a few studies. One was published 70 years ago by Linus Pauling. Wow. And we've learned a lot since then, but he basically got it right. I mean, he said that it depends on whether or not oxygen is bound to the hemoglobin or something else like carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide or whatever. If uh, nothing is bound to the hemoglobin, so you have deoxygenated hemoglobin, it's actually paramagnetic. Uh, A paramagnetic material will respond to an external magnetic field, but very weakly. Hmm. You know, orders of magnitude less than a ferromagnetic material. Uh, And then as soon as the magnetic field is taken away, any effect goes away. So you could think, oh, yeah, well, maybe there's some paramagnetic effect, but the effect is so tiny it would be negligible. Like the gravitational pull of Mars on my blood. Yeah, right. (laughs) Also, that's for deoxygenated blood, which doesn't really help you that much, right? If you're talking about improving arterial flow, where most of the blood is oxygenated. Now, oxyhemoglobin actually has a magnetic moment of zero because there are no free electrons, uh, which apparently makes it very weakly diamagnetic which is the opposite of paramagnetic in that it's, uh, it would cause a, an external magnetic field will repulse things that are diamagnetic, right? So you remember the, the levitating frog? How could we forget? Oh, yes. right? Yeah, because classic. living things tend to be diamagnetic. So in a strong enough magnetic field, they'll be repulsed you know, by the field. So, so oxygenated hemoglobin either won't have like, any effect from an external magnetic field, or if it has, you know, if it's weakly diamagnetic, it would have uh, a repulsive force, which would tend to have the opposite effect as to what was observed. So oxygenated blood would would either not respond at all, or would not, you know, chain up like was like was being described in this paper. So that's you know that's a big theoretical problem with this. Also, if you look at the image of the red cells sort of clumped together, they're not all nice and lined up. I mean, they are a little bit, but they're also, it's not perfectly lined up. They're clumpy in different directions as well. So that would be a significant problem in terms of flowing through capillaries, which is, you know, how the oxygen actually gets to the tissue is when it's flowing through the capillaries. Uh, And essentially through a capillary, again, the smallest arteries, only one red blood cell can fit at a time. So any clumping like is being shown in this picture would actually impede flow through capillaries. But I suspect that this isn't happening at all because if it were, then, th- then people would have problems in MRI scanners 
and there's no ill effects. You know, your blood doesn't stop flowing through capillaries if you go through it in an MRI scan. Um, it's possible this is all just an artifact that the actual, even though, you know, the, the question of applicability aside, the effect may not even be real, given that there are theoretical problems with how they're saying the effect occurs, and we don't see this effect with um, MRI scans, at least what we would expect the clinical effects to be if it really were clumping like in the picture they're showing. So that's, the, that's yet another problem. So if we, and if we think about applicability, applicability to people, you know, that, which is, of course, where all the reporting went, preventing heart attacks, there, you know, there's lots of, of problems with this. You know, first, uh, as I stated, this was done in a, a fairly large tube. We have no idea what the effects would be in smaller arteries, and I suspect if the claims are true, that would that would be a bad thing when you get down to the capillary level. But also, this effect was only observed when they had the tube lined up with, you know, a straight tube lined up with the magnetic field. How are you going to do that in a, a living organism where arteries are going every which way? Even the arteries in just the heart are going three-dimensionally. They're wrapping around the heart. You know what I mean? They're not just going in one direction. So I'm not sure how you would solve that problem. You know, maybe they found an interesting effect here. It's you know, I wouldn't assume that based upon this one study. And I think that they and they you know they didn't really deal very well with the discussion of possible mechanism. Uh, but even if you give them the benefit of the doubt that this effect is genuine and it holds up to replication, the the probability of this having the kind of application they're talking about is negligible to nothing. Uh, it's you know, I guess it's possible. That you know, you, there may be some clever way to exploit this phenomenon to have a clinical activity, but you know, just like applying a magnetic field to people in order to reduce their risk of events like heart attacks or strokes is not one of them. And the, other, the other little wrinkle is that the effect lasts for two hours, and then the, the cells went back to their baseline. So again, even if it does work, it's not really a practical treatment for a prevention like so you're going to subject yourself to a 1.3 tesla magic at, for a magnet for 1 minute every 2 hours for the rest of your life you know I mean, what mm. what's what's the application it's not like something you could wear or something you could have in your house you know at least not anytime soon a 1.3 a 1.3 tesla magnet is a massive p- piece of equipment terrible reporting on this one it really was very disappointing and hemoglobin hemoglobin Hemoglobin, hemoglobin. Is that Archie Bunker? Did you say that? Women have hemoglobin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something you would say. <laughs> Sorry, I just assumed that's a show called all, there, so. all in the Family. Dingbats. Oh, thanks. heard of it. <laughs> it was written about the time Linus Pauling was going batshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, he was having his scientific meltdown around that time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Rebecca, give us a quick update about the guru who was responsible uh, for people dying in the sweat lodge. Yeah, I think we covered this back when the deaths were in the news. Um, We did. Yeah, James A. Ray is the name of the so-called sweat lodge guru. And he became quite famous before this thanks to one Oprah Winfrey. He was on her show twice to discuss the secret, which is the, you know, law of attraction, the idea that the universe will give you everything you want if only you believe hard enough that you already have it. 
this works very well for people like Oprah and James Ray, who make millions off of people purchasing their books and believing these philosophies. Unfortunately, the philosophies don't work for pretty much anyone else who's not already incredibly rich. So James A. Ray had a sweat lodge in Sedona, Arizona, um, or at least near Sedona, Arizona, which of course is like the hippie capital of the world, I think. Um, of the multiverse. Yeah, that too. And uh, so <laughs> he had the sweat lodge there, which is basically just a, a, a hut that's covered in blankets and, and things. And they... Um, they, it gets very, very hot inside there and people pay a tremendous amount of money to go and talk to Ray and then go into the sweat lodge and have this spiritual awakening. Um, they, they paid nearly $10,000 each, uh, to, to go into this sweat lodge and. Right. To get delirious from dehydration. Yeah. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, uh, a little while ago, back in, in 2009, I believe it was, uh, three people died in the sweat lodge. Uh, James Ray is on, on tape saying something along the lines of, um, you know, just feel free to give up and die. It's okay. Things like that. And so he was accused of, uh, of being completely negligent. He was, uh, prosecutors originally, um, were hoping to charge him with manslaughter, saying that he should have known that the sweat lodge ceremony would end in, uh, would, would risk death and, and injury. Uh, but unfortunately, they didn't get that rather serious charge. But, uh, luckily, they did convict Ray of, um, a slightly less serious charge, but still quite serious charge of, of guilty by guilty of negligent homicide. And, mm -hmm. uh, that can, it, a lot now depends on the sentencing. He could, he could get anything from probation to more than 30 years in prison. So, uh, the prosecutors obviously are pushing for the stricter end of the spectrum, but who knows? What I find really interesting though is that the, Judge found that the the prosecutors were not apparently able to prove that Ray knew the risks going in. Um, however, Ray had these people sign waivers saying that they risked death. You know, I guess they weren't able to conclusively prove that um, he wasn't just being a total idiot when he let these people die in his sweat lodge. So uh, I don't think we'll be hearing much about it on Oprah's network. But, um, yeah, you can file this as yet another way that pseudoscience can kill. Pseudoscience kills, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's, it is interesting. You know, how much due diligence do we hold people to? But and I think it's reasonable. I mean, if you're, you're doing something which I think the, uh, your average person would realize that there's some risk here, right? You, you, you do the uh, what's called, I guess, what, what's it called, the, the average guy or the common you know, person rule. Yeah, the man on the street or, sort of thing. Yeah, like the, a, a reasonable person rule, I think oh, yeah. is what it's called. So what would your average reasonable personal person think about this? You think it would be there's any health risk to staying in a sweat lodge so long that you begin to feel delirious? You know, I think most people realize that there's some medical risk there. And yet people are willing to set aside that, you know, that, that feeling of risk because 
they trust someone, an authority, who's telling them that you know, don't worry, I've done this before. It's going to be fine. Yeah, I've you know, they've paid ten thousand dollars to be there. Of course, this guy's not going to kill them uh, yeah. until he does. Yeah, it's like when you get on a roller coaster, you're assuming right that whatever infrastructure is in place, you know, it wouldn't let you get on the roller coaster if it were really dangerous. You're putting your trust in regulation and someone else's expertise, their assurances, their whatever, their authority. As um, you not always a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah, for yeah, roller coasters, right. it's fine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have to. You know, obviously, you have to do it sometimes. But right? the fly-by-night carnival that's all rickety, maybe, maybe give it a pass. Yeah, yeah maybe not. You do a good start. Personally, yeah. I, I like those more. <laughs> you know, more, more fun when you think you actually might die. But well, what if you had to sign a waiver before getting onto this? Yeah, I think I think then I might I might back off. Yeah, the possibility of decapitation. <laughs> That's because my fear of lawyers is greater than my fear of death. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily agree with your assessment, guys. I think a lot of people Whoa. would be very trusting of something that they think is, you know, natural and and earthy and that type of thing. I mean, it's, the sweat lodge thing has a a huge, you know, it's very granola. It's, it makes people. Saying, oh, this is like what the Indians, American Indians used to do. and you know, Sweat, they, Sweating out the toxins. Yeah, I, I, I think that anything that doesn't require pills or medicine is going to be more likely to be trusted than something that does. Yeah, I'm sure that contributed, but I don't, I don't think it takes away the notion that there, a reasonable person would realize that there is some medical risk here. That And if this guy is – he's the one who's in charge – He's the one who is, you know, setting up the whole thing and telling people to trust him and do it. That he has a certain responsibility to make sure he knows what he's doing. That he's not going to push it beyond safe limits. And he did. He clearly didn't do that. Yeah, but it's it's good mm-hmm. to see, you know, appro- you know, people appropriately being held responsible for their actions. Yeah, it happens sometimes. Yeah, and and unfortunately, it won't stop the practice. Others are going to come along and do the exact same stuff, and there'll be plenty of people willing to do yeah. it. It's it, it's interesting that a, a lot of societies developed mechanisms of generating encephalopathy, right? Basically, of putting the brain in a situation where it's not functioning well as part of a spiritualist of, of a spiritual ritual, right? We're going to get you to go on your spiritual journey by giving you a, you know a, a drug. That's a hallucinogen, you know, or by, you know, deprive of, depriving you of nutrition for a couple of days or of putting you in a hothouse until you get dehydrated. You well, know, how how so, else are you going to see God? Right. Well, it's funny. You know, that, that's, that's the, the reliable way to generate a bizarre experience is to make sure your brain not function properly. <laughs> that's an awesome statement, Steve. That's awesome. <laughs> That could mean so many different things. Human beings have been very ingenious in discovering all kinds of ways to get high. Is the other, it's is true. The other thing? It's true. Every Bad culture, songs. pretty much, pretty much every culture found something in their environment that would get them high. Don't snort bath salts, kids. <laughs> I, just, I just suddenly been, been there, done I suddenly that. had a vision of somebody hearing me say that, going out and snorting them, and then I'm on trial. You're on the true on the, on yeah. the right. disclaimer. Yeah, don't do Stick anything with, with, Rebecca tells you to do. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't eat so much nutmeg that you trip. Okay. <laughs> what about toad licking? Toad licking. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it makes sense. I mean, you imagine no TV, no internet, no smartphone. I mean, you do a lot. You do a lot of experimenting. Like, hey, let's try. Th- let's snort this. Mm-hmm. Let's and try smoking sex. that. And then have sex. 
Well, it all started <laughs> with the trial and error of eating plants and different animals and all oh, that yeah. stuff. That's funny. You give, you give it to the to the weakest person in the tribe. Here, try this. Try it. Come on. Come on. Do it. Like, oh, boy. See what the reaction is. Exactly. Well, I think we all had that <laughs> friend in third grade who would eat anything. I think that sort of person has gone back until the beginning of humankind, <laughs> you know, and has made us all a better, a better God race. Bl- God bless him. God bless him. <laughs> there was some kid in high school that ate a fly. And I remember yeah. thinking, I'm never talking to him again. And and now, God. you know, you should really be thanking him for, uh, you know, helping the species survive. What was his name? Spider-Man? Oh, my God. Really, Evan? <laughs> that's, that's the best I could do. <laughs> uh, I, what was his like name? Bug eater guy? <laughs> <laughs> aren't roasted flies like a delicacy in Mexico? Uh, New Mexico. What was, what's that show where the, where the guy eats the most disgusting things in the world? Fear Factor. Oh, Anthony Bourdain? No. Um, Not Fear Factor. It's, uh, on the, uh, the, the Travel Network. Yeah. Well, so there's a show where a guy eats the most disgusting oh, things around the world. You can imagine. We, yeah. we, I don't know. We do watch it, and oh my gosh, what Isn't the hell like, did he eat? He ate a sea cucumber the other night. Oh my goodness! But he that did. He did. Thing eat, was vile. I've had fried sea- flies. Yeah. Fried <laughs> fried flies. Try saying that. Fried flies. Fried flies. Fried fries. That is. Why? Don't even say it, Jay. Don't don't even go there. Hey, insects are a staple food in much of the world. They're yeah, very good protein. They a lot of protein. They're, yeah. they're very nutritious. Yeah, lots of protein. Yeah. You know. I know I'm programmed by my culture. You know, like I know there's cultures out there. They're like, sure, I'll eat that gigantic slug that's living in a log. But I just, I even though intellectually I get it, I cannot make the emotional connection in any way. It's disgusting to me. A little goat head soup. Come on. My, my standing favorite is maggot cheese. Yeah, you know, cheese with maggots running through it. I mean, what, you know, what's, what gets better than that? In in Peru, they have. Uh, I think it's actually happening right now. I could be wrong on that, but they have a guinea pig festival in which they dress up guinea pigs in funny little outfits and sort of parade them around, and then they eat them. And you know, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm generally okay with eat meat if done in you know sustainable manner. But I am very much against that sort of animal cruelty before before killing an animal. You should see them. I know they're like, wearing you little. You put them in a suit before you kill them. That's yeah, they're ridiculous. wearing they're wearing little hats yeah. and dresses, and they look oh. they look miserable. MJ. Oh, that's that's awful. It's, it's the most adorable, horrible thing ever. <laughs> yeah, how do you do that? Oh, isn't he cute? And then, you know, two hours nom, later, nom, nom. bacon. Here comes here comes yeah, the axe. And tender. Those are the last moments of that guinea pig's life: is wearing your tiny little dress like and heels. And then getting eaten. Now, Rebecca, do not criticize another culture. Why not? They're, That's funny. They're just as valid as any other culture. <laughs> what if it's funny to criticize? Yeah. <laughs> what would Perry say about? Hey, that? I crit- I criticize American cruelty to animals as well. It's oh, just, that's true. Uh, you know, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's always our out. It's like, well, we criticize everything yeah. that way. We can criticize whatever we want. We don't have to it's just funnier <laughs> when, when cruelty to animals doesn't involve horrific factory farms, but in fact involves dressing them up outfits. in tiny little outfits. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, yeah. how's the space station doing? The space station is fine, but there are some really horrific stats that I just read a lot about that uh, were in the wake of the space station almost getting creamed by some space junk. Space junk? So, They're pretty darn close. Some space debris that's obviously orbiting the Earth. It 
I don't know, cruised, it flipped. Like, what do you call when something passes you at 29,000 miles an hour? What is that? Like, it buzzed? It buzzed. Mm-hmm. We got to come up with a cooler word for like when Fly something by. like zips past you that fast. But on Tuesday, Zips. the 28th of June, the International Space Station had a, a pretty close call with, uh, with a piece of space debris. I couldn't find any anything on how big it was. I don't think we we actually know how big the the piece was. So it came within. Now, what do you think they consider close? How, how far away was it? Oh, uh, eleven hundred kilometer. Feet. <laughs> kilometer. Three. Three. I did the nice thing and excused myself. Three angstroms. Yeah, it came. It came pretty close. This was an ex- exceptionally close call in in. Uh, Earth space orbit terms. terms, yeah. Yeah. So right now we have six people on board the space station, and they all had to run to the uh, Soyuz spacecrafts that are there in case the space station has any significant problems. They're, they're there to ferry the people back to Earth if anything happens. So Lark Holworth, who leads the team at NASA that tracks the station's trajectory, said, we believe the probability that it would hit the station was about 1 in 360. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, pretty significant number there. The impact was so likely that the astronauts unclamped the freaking Soyuz capsule from the space station. So if something did happen, if that piece of debris happened to hit the space station, they could have had a, um, a depressurization, you know, explosion or implosion. Um, so some really nasty things can happen if, if the uh, space station gets breached. So they were literally one move away from undocking the capsule. They they unclamped it from the space station, and all they had to do was press a button to get ejected from the space station, and that would have been it. So they weren't sure. They really didn't know during those four minutes that it was within range. They uh, you know they were there ready to get out. So it, it was pretty damn serious. NASA said that the chance of a space collision is one in five over over a ten year lifespan of the space station. Yeah, that's wow. not something you want to hear right before you go on board. Yeah, they knew 15 hours ahead of time, but they didn't have time to move the, the station safely. You know, the space station, it's a pretty big deal to to change the, the orbit or the trajectory of the space station. And they, they have rockets on the space station. They also have had the space shuttle nudge the space station. Uh, and they've had to do this 12 times and move away from debris that they predicted would, would cross paths. But... You know, in 15 hours, it wasn't enough time for them to uh, to figure out where to move it to and everything. You know, there's consequences every time they 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 change its yeah. path. Well, wait, why didn't they just put the shields up? Yeah, right. <laughs> I've thought about that. Oh, it's too right. bad. You know, eventually, I'm sure we'll have some type of you know <laughs> thing that does something to to debris coming near or whatever. But um, yeah, you know, laser. As, yeah, they put right a repulsive now, ray inside hmm. an obelisk. You go inside the obelisk and then it shoots the ray out. Yeah. It pushes it away. It is dangerous. They consider, you know, being in orbit very dangerous now, you know, and that's, you know, not just from getting on a rocket ship and, and, you know, shooting your ass all the way off the surface of the planet up into orbit, but it's from being up there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of unpredictable things going on. So the only other time this happened was in March of 2009 when they had another close call. Um, they called the flyby, so. NASA estimated that for each six-month period, there's a one in 100 chance that some, some or all of the space station crew might need to evacuate. Wow. But you wonder, I mean, should they, for, if they're going to build stations like that for long-term uh, occupation, should they put some physical shields in place? I mean, you could imagine, 
putting you know a couple inches of steel outside of the station to to act yeah as I wonder a if that's a shield. if that's a financial a issue shield. or if it's a physics problem yeah is there some practical reason not to do that yeah I'm sure all of those things come into play I mean you know the cost per pound to get things into outer space that's, you know that's key I mean that's the big problem. And that cost for the United cost. States has significantly gone up since you know we have one one more space shuttle going off, and then yeah. we're going to be renting space. Yeah, I'd still go up there though, in a heartbeat. I wouldn't because of, yeah. No, <laughs> no I, I no, I'm just so claustrophobic with stuff like that. I, I know I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to deal with it. Yeah, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get past the psych profile where they put you in a little room for three days. Yeah, I'll be in there for like fifteen minutes and I'll be crying. I'm just, oh, please, I don't want to go. Let me out. Is, it, is that a Skinner box? Uh, they throw you. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, would you go? Yeah, I would go. Because because be, how you'd, you'd how be scared often? though? Yeah, I'd be when scared when you get a shitless. chance. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what you know what it is, Jay. It's free drinks for the rest of your life. If, that, if you make it true. home, you never buy a drink again. I mean, you are pretty damn cool, but Rebecca, that would if you be were your like Rebecca, motivation. Rebecca right. Watson, right. you know, space astronaut. explorer. Yeah, yeah space explorer. Yeah, that's what, that's what would be on my business cards. Not astronaut, space explorer, space conqueror. Imagine, you know, you're in that and you're flying it and you're, you're calm as a cucumber. That's cool as a cucumber. That's pretty awesome. Uh, at least on the outside. I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone's calm as a cucumber, Jay. But uh, I think they're all well, first exhilarated of all, it's as cool all hell. As a cucumber, but what did I say? Calm, calm, which is what yeah, Jay said, calm. which I find actually He's, quite enjoyable. The picture. Well, what of a are you cucumber. calm as? Calm as a what? Calm as a calm person. You're, calm <laughs> as a uh, uh, koala. Yeah, koalas are pretty calm damn as calm. Koala. <laughs> calm as a koala. Yeah, calm as a koala. Calm, calm as a cadaver. As a tree sloth. Comma, comma, well, comma, slow. comma, comma, chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> Low, <laughs> lower than a snake belly. Comma, chameleon. <laughs> the comet chameleon. Evan. Steve. How you doing? I'm fine tonight. How are you, sir? Good. Are you ready for Who's Good. That Noisy? I am. Is everybody else ready? Yes. Let's hear it. All right. I, I did a physics degree at Imperial College, and I did four years postgraduate in uh, the motions of zodiacal dust in the solar system. And then something called me, and I had to go. One of the greatest rock and roll legends in the history of that fine art. Boy George? <laughs> Close, <laughs> yeah. A little less colorful. Our friend Brian Harold May. Brian May, yep, nice guy. From the rock band Queen. Mm. And uh, Planet Rock Straw Poll uh, in May of 2005 voted him the seventh greatest guitarist of all time. He is also an astrophysicist. Which is why what? he's cool. Really? He yeah. is an astrophysicist. Yes. Quite a famous one. <laughs> Arguably one of the most famous ones. Not because of the work he's doing, but, you know, because of his past associations. And who, who got that correct, Evan? Ashley Zinnick. Who answered uh, both via email and the mess and on the message board? He was the first one to. That's a good way to hedge your bets. Good job, yeah. Ashley. Okay, folks. Yeah, you know where got this you. is going. <laughs> got your ears on? <laughs> because here comes this week's "Who's That Noisy." It does sound like a kid's xylophone. It does. It's not. <laughs> I assure you. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's something much cooler. Okay. So take your best <laughs> guess. <laughs> Post your message on our forum or send us an email, info at theskepticsguide.org. And, of course, good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. Well, let's go on with our interview. We're here at Nexus 2011, and we are joined now by Eugenie Scott from the NCSE, the National Center for Science Education. Eugenie, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Nice to be back. Uh, Jeannie, you were talking about the fact that we, we need to continue to be vigilant about creationism. This isn't a battle that we have won, not in the scientific arena, but in the, in the public arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Nobody enjoys my talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair I mean, or bad news, I guess. That's right. Um, no, what I was talking about in, in uh, yesterday's uh, presentation was, was more about the way that the creationist movement has evolved to the legal uh, constraints that the uh, establishment clause of our Constitution has put on them. And so uh, when creation science came along, the constitutional provisions against uh, uh, advocating religion in the public schools came down on them hard, and the court said you can't do it. And then when intelligent design came along, the same thing happened. So what they've done is moved to what what actually is a very old strategy of theirs of of just straight up denigrating evolution mm-hmm. and uh, they went back it, to their roots they went back yeah, yeah. i mean they, they've always had this sort of parallel push for you know simultaneously uh, trying to get some form of creationism into the classroom mm-hmm. that that's you know they, they've only recently given up on that as a legal strategy i mean trust me there's yeah. plenty of it going on and, and you know you just don't hear about yeah. it lots of teachers are are bringing creationism into just the classroom quietly doing but, it, yeah. yeah freelancing so to speak but at least you don't have any policies that uh, school boards or states are are passing that you know for for straight up teaching of creation science or intelligent design. You you were saying they they went back to their roots and 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 that's a good way to put it because consistent from the beginning of the creation science movement back in the 1960s, they have always argued for what they call the two model approach, mm-hmm. where you have. Either special creation or you have evolution. Those are the only two possibilities. So logically, if not A, then B, right? And they're yeah. models, not theories. False dichotomy. Oh, no. Well, they call them theories, but obviously as scientific Remember theories. At the, at the time, they were using the term models. My, yeah. my impression was that they wanted to avoid the word theory. Possibly. Because but, they wanted um, to say, well, evolution is not a theory. It's just a model. And no, no, no. Creation's they, a model, so they're equal. Or they're, but whatever they are, they're equal. They're equal. I mean, that was sort of a way, way to achieve the perception yeah. of equality. Yeah. Between what, them. Whether they call it a model or a theory, they're they're equal. Yeah. And so you know, creation, special creation, or evolution. So the the argument was, well, if we can just disprove evolution, then creation wins by default. Yeah. I mean that you know, if not A, then B. Logic, logically, there's actually nothing wrong with that. It's the premises yeah. that are the problem. Right. right. So um, they've always had this, um, this this current running along with trying to get creationism into the schools, trying to uh, convince the public and particularly convince students that evolution really is weak theory. There's nothing to it. Scientists are giving up on it and all yeah. that. And so now that the um, the strategy of trying to get creationism into the schools has just run into it just a complete brick wall of mm-hmm. the of the establishment clause, they are really focusing on this denigration strategy. 
And the, word, the way we're seeing this working out uh, these days and for the last several years is through the establishment of what they call or what has been called Academic Freedom yeah. Acts. And it's a very clever packaging because they're drawing on American cultural values of fairness, of um, uh, an enthusiasm that we all have. You know, we want our kids to be critical thinkers, right. so uh, critical thinking is worked into this. And um, the idea of academic freedom for teachers, you know, free teachers to teach what they consider good science. Mm-hmm. And these are all ideas that resonate very strongly with the, the American right. public. And it, on the surface, it does not look like an establishment clause problem because there's never any mention of evolution. There's never, I'm sorry, there's never any mention of religion, never any mention of creationism. It just sounds like, oh, we're just trying to improve the education of our kids. Right, but they're so singling these, out evolution you know, and sometimes the Big Bang. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. and the fact that, and, and they've even gotten cleverer about that too because there was a... Um, Supreme Court decision um, uh, back in the 60s, the Epperson uh, versus Arkansas case, where the Supreme Court called into question the Arkansas law because it singled out evolution from everything else in the Mm -hmm. curriculum. So we think that maybe the bundling of evolution with things like global warming or cloning and and other you know conservative Christian enthusiasms. (laughs) No, gravity's fine. That's not around the sun. That's not around. But but bundling of evolution with these other uh, other uh, causes could be a way of trying to avoid the Epperson um, uh, constraint of singling out evolution. But still. This is about evolution. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not about critical thinking. Trust yeah. me on this, guys. And I, whenever I see the work you guys are doing, particularly with yeah. the uh, textbooks in, in Texas, I'm always shocked when I'm reading over it. it if, if I didn't have you guys there to point out like where the creationists are trying to insert in the, the language, I probably would have missed it. I would just skim right over it they're and be like, subtle. yeah, that sounds fine. You know? <laughs> and then, yeah, and, but then you guys yeah. are there to say, well, yeah. no, because they're going to take this and this yeah. is what they're going to do with There's that. A purpose this is why it. they That's can't right. do that. Right. You know? So I really appreciate the, the work you guys are doing in that respect because they really are insidious and, mm-hmm. and it seems mm-hmm. like it's taking a lot more detective work to mm-hmm. sniff out exactly what they're doing and how they're doing and how to stop it. Well, you know, like everything else, this movement has a history. And if you understand the history, then you're more, and, you know, God knows we're up to our nostrils in this. This is what we do. Then it's, yeah, it's easier to recognize these kinds of buzzwords. And, and you know, like, like I was joking um, yesterday, not really joking in, in my talk, that, that if you ever see the word balanced in the same paragraph as the word evolution, you're about 95% sure that that paragraph was written by a creationist yeah, <laughs> because right, right. there are just certain words that, that come up. Yeah. Um, another real clue is, is uh, evidences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, scientists don't talk about the evidences for gravitation. I mean, we don't talk about the evidences for cell division or the evidences for enzyme function. We talk about evidence in, in the singular. But evidences in the plural is commonly found in the creationist literature and it comes from Christian apologetics Mm -hmm. because evidences in the plural is a term of art within that particular area of theology Uh, evidences are what you present to somebody to try to you know, bring them to Jesus and help them understand the importance of of this conversion and like that so evidences is another 
one of the. But I, I think what what you're talking about, Re, uh, Becky, is, is Rebecca is. The, <laughs> Rachel, sorry, we're, Rachel, we're familiar enough. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. Whatever. <laughs> is um, Ms. Watson <laughs> is um, the much more subtle kinds of things, like like with the Texas standards. There was a line in there talking about uh, you know the the, the importance of. Uh, or, or an, a line that was added, a standard that was added by the creationist board of education down there. A line about the um, uh, students should learn about about cell function. Well, that's not quite the phrase, but as soon as we saw that, we thought, "Uh huh, this is the intelligent design guys at work." Yeah. Because cell function in, and the bacteria flagellum and all yeah. this other kind right. of stuff is is really key to their design. Irreducible so. complexity. In England, there's a real problem with American uh, creationist groups sneaking in and uh, getting into uh, private religious schools and setting up shop there and kind of getting their little tendrils into the government. And so right now, it's not a big problem in in England, at least. Uh, And I think Ireland, it's the same thing is happening. But I'm really worried that they don't have... The uh, the tools, yeah. yeah. There's no there's That's no right. one it's there like like genie who can oh, yes. read oh, through yes. that. Oh yes, good news is, there? is okay. there's a British Center for Science Education ah. modeled after NCSE, uh, the American. And uh, these, the, I, I met a number of these people when I was there um, a month or so ago, um, and you know, really, really a great group. And they do a lot of the same sort of thing that we do in terms of uh, if a teacher has a problem, they can give that teacher advice and what to do and and you know but it's a much smaller uh, right. uh, problem but the big problem in in uh, England that I see or Great Britain that I see is that as you said uh, the creationists are are bringing their literature in and most of it of course is anti-evolution you know most of it is is the gaps in the fossil record now the second law of thermodynamics proves evolution can't take place and yeah, all these other moldy old arguments that we <laughs> refuted so many times we're sick of them but the teachers in uh, Great Britain although they're not you know they're not in favor of teaching creationism they actually don't know much about evolution yeah. right? and the you know much like our North American teachers and the problem is that when a kid comes up with this literature says gee teacher you know look here you know Tiktaalik is nothing but a fish or what um a lot of these teachers are going to say, well, you know, geez, I didn't know that evolution was in so much That's trouble. Right. I mean, what I'd like to see, and, and actually th- this was a little bit embarrassing when, um, when it was revealed by some surveys uh, that uh, British teachers really didn't know much about evolution. Um, I would like to see the, the British professors uh, in their post-secondary education doing a lot better job with science education. Right. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this may be the wake-up call. Yeah, there's always that upside to pseudoscience. We were chatting mm-hmm. about this yesterday, actually, with, with Phil Platon. Yeah, Brian ironically. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. that uh, the, the denialists and pseudoscientists and anti-scientists actually force the scientists to actually be much better at and their job. And to think more about the nature of science. Yeah. I know that happened to me. You know, when yeah. I first, my, my, my gateway pseudoscience, if you will, was, uh, was creationism back yeah. in... 1971, but who's counting? <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it really did make me think more about philosophy of science, about, yeah. well, now, okay, so they say they're doing science, but I'm doing science, and so how are we coming up with such different conclusions? So, you know, let's look at what we're doing here. Oh, right. yes, look where they've gone astray. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Oh, I, I mean, I absolutely, for myself personally, think I understand evolution much better than I ever would have if I didn't spend as much time as I have dissecting creationist mm-hmm. arguments mm-hmm. to find out exactly mm-hmm. what was wrong with them because mm-hmm. they're, they're subtle in many cases. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've had this sort of a similar conversation with a lot of our audience. Um, it's this idea that none of us would really be interested in skepticism or science uh, at this stage in our lives if in the past we hadn't had an interest in some kind of paranormal or pseudoscience you know like when i was a kid i mm. loved cryptozoological creatures and and you know don't, esp don't, don't you and, want there to be a bigfoot yes. i would sure. love for there to be a bigfoot yes. i've got a just, oh, wait, wait, there's no bigfoot well there is down at Yeti. my uh, at my table at the skeptic oh, okay. table downstairs i've got i've got squatchy the the bigfoot um <laughs> but but yeah i mean i think that a lot of us share this this real love of the goofy sort of out there esp that that whole world um and we're we're not that different from the people we're trying to persuade yeah (laughs) and i think it's helpful because you know for me it was first my my love of um figuring out a con that that led me to realize like oh okay so some cons are bad science and the flip side of the bad science is this good science and as i'm like debunking this i'm also getting a real appreciation of how life really is and that's what got me interested in science in my 20s (laughs) Jeannie thanks for joining us as well always a pleasure to talk to you my pleasure it's time for science or fiction each week I come up with three science news items or facts two real and one fake and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake Everyone ready for this week? Yes. Carpe diem. Let's get going. Ready? Item number one. A recent extensive DNA analysis of coconuts indicates that all modern cultivated coconuts derive from a single ancestral variety located in Indonesia. Item number two. Paleontologists have discovered fossilized eyes, 515... 515 million years old. They are surprisingly complex compound eyes with about 3,000 lenses. And item number three, a new study finds that wars have been increasing steadily over the last century by uh, by 2% per year on average. Rebecca, since you're doing so well, oh, man. and since I'm a strong believer mm-hmm. in regression to the mean, I want mm. you to go first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So coconut come from a single ancestral variety in Indonesia. Um, sure. Why not? Sure. I don't know anything about coconuts. <laughs> I don't even. <laughs> You've got to love. I don't, even, bunch I don't of know them. how to know where coconuts are found. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know. That sounds. That sounds believable to me, though. Fossilized eyes, five hundred fifteen million years old. Now that sounds slightly less believable, um, if only because eyes are are squishy things that I expect to um, disintegrate pretty quickly after death. But to have 3,000 lenses, it seems that calling them surprisingly complex is the understatement of the year. Who needs 3,000 lenses? No one. No one needs to. Maybe that's why they died. Too many lenses. And then the idea that war has increased steadily over the last century by 2% per year on average. That doesn't seem right. So I'm going to go ahead and say that that one is in fact the fiction. Okay, Bob. Let's see here. 
Um, something about the DNA analysis of the coconut, something about Indonesia strikes me as making sense. Um, other than that, I don't know a hell of a lot of where coconuts could have possibly originally come from. So based on that vague feeling, I will go with that one as probably true. The second one, complex eyes half a billion years ago. Um, that is interesting. I don't share Rebecca's skepticism on preservation of that, but it does seem somewhat remarkable um, and pretty cool. But I also have to agree with Rebecca on three, though, that, yeah, the war thing, yeah, too many unknown, lots of questions, and 2% per year on average for the past century. I have another vague memory of the opposite kind of being true. Um, So based on my vague feelings, I will agree with Rebecca and say that the war thing is baloney. Okay, Evan. Uh, The coconuts. (laughs) The uh, story like, ah. about the uh, coconuts is, uh, uh, I, yeah, I don't see why there couldn't be uh, derived from a single ancestral variety in Indonesia. I, I can't see any problem with that. Definitely the fossilized eyes from 515 million years ago is interesting. Not not that there were eyes on creatures back then, but they but how complex they were. Um, this one about the wars, the last one is, is really tough until I, I remember it's a strange thing. A couple of years ago, I remember someone telling me that there were, this was like in 2009 and they said there were like 25 or 30 active wars going on in the world at the time. And I'm like, no way. It can't be, it can't be that many. It's going to be, you know, maybe six, eight. 10 but like 25 or so and sure enough he directed me to the website and there were there were there were there were lots of little conflicts that we we don't know about it's not part of our daily news intake well i'm not going to bet against bob and rebecca so that's going to their gravity is going to pull me into that one so i'll say the wars always wars, always safe. Uh, not always but this time it is it's, wars is fiction okay jay okay so the one about the coconuts so all coconuts are coming from one type of coconut in Indonesia. And uh like all the coconuts that we eat today, I don't I don't know, isn't there different kinds of coconuts that we eat today? Like there's not just one type of coconut. Evolution, out there. hello. Speciation. I'm saying that we don't eat just one type of coconut today. You know, it makes me think when 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 Steve first read this, I'm like, well did did every fruit and vegetable and all that start from basically one one place like I, I don't I don't know I, I don't know I, I, something about this seems a little little weird to me uh, the one about the discovering eyes 515 million years old you know and the first thing I thought of again when Steve said this was like what you know I'm thinking like my million eyes and I realized well these have to be something else you know yeah that's that is really cool yeah sure I just I mean like where do you find something like that that's <laughs> that old do you know I I have I have an allergy. I developed a food allergy to coconuts in the recent years. I ate it all my life. It was fine just a couple years ago. And guess what happens when I eat coconuts? My eyes start to itch and water. There is a yes. total Wait, maybe all three of these have to do with Evan. But I, I don't see why um they they wouldn't find some type of fossilized eye or or whatever from some dig somewhere. Sure, that's not crazy. 
new study finds that the wars have been increasing 2% a year on average. I mean, if you just think about the wars that we've had in the past 100 years, we've had a ton of war. I mean, there's always a war going on somewhere. So the only one here that I feel like I had a uh, weird feeling about was the coconut. I don't I don't think that is real. I think that's the Join fake. us. Make your eyes itch. I'll okay, never so- join you in Rebecca, Bob. You have, <laughs> that's my pattern. Jay's going out on a limb by himself this time. Uh, all right. Well, you all agree, for some strange reason, that paleontologists <laughs> have discovered fossilized eyes 550 million years old. We completely agree. They are surprisingly yeah. complex compound eyes with about 3,000 lenses. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Oh, yeah. oh that's right. 3,000 lenses. It has to be like a freaking fly eye or exactly. something. Exactly. It's a ding, compound ding, ding, eye, ding, ding, as ding. it says in the description. <laughs> well, excuse <laughs> me for being overly exhausted. <sighs> Seems like a lot. I don't know. It is a lot. That's what was surprising about it. Now, the the interesting thing is that there's no creature to go with the eyes. What? So they what, they just found a pair of eyes. Yeah, they don't they don't know what creature That's they belong creepy. to. They think it's probably some kind of a giant that shrimp awesome. or time travel, and someone jumped back. Whoops, too far, and left their eyes. Now, which is really interesting, that it might be a giant <laughs> shrimp because the only kind of shrimp I will eat is coconut shrimp. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> There you go. All right. These are found- that's, some, that's some good shrimp with the dipping sauce, right? The oh, margar- my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, with the margarita love, dipping sauce. I love that. Uh, this is an international team led by scientists from the South Australian Museum. And the University of Adelaide found these fossils. They were found in – I believe they were found in Australia. So it's what's what, – one of the surprising things is that this is, you know, 515 million years ago. This is not too long after the development of multicellular life, like what, 560 million years ago. So they were saying that, uh, which I agree, that there must have been massive selective pressure to develop mm. eyes. Well, yeah, uh, kind of nice, handy to have, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the pressures are so strong because see, seeing a little bit better is a huge advantage. Once you're on that path, um, you're, you're going to develop eyes fairly quickly. And uh, so, you know, this is more developed than they thought they would have gotten to by this point. But again, it's not surprising. Now, I also learned something new about compound eyes. You know how, like, in the movies when they show you, like, the flies, eye yeah. view of things? And, and they look through a kaleidoscope like, uh, or something. Yeah, it's like the movie The Fly, where yeah. there's a lot of images reproduced in each facet, in each lens yes. of the compound yeah. eye. That's not how they work. Each lens is a pixel. It's not a reproduction whole of the image, whole yeah. image. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so ma- those museum gift shop kaleidoscope things have been lying to me all this yes, time? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Money back now. See how a fly sees? No, it's not how it works at all. So this thing had 3,000 <laughs> lenses and had 3,000 pixel vision. That's not my res. That's oh, no. That's low res. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty good though. Three thousand is that's a lot. You know, even there are things alive today with compound eyes, like the horseshoe crab has only a thousand pixels. The best, you know, what 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 compound eye? Name the creature and the number of pixels. What do you think is the the best? Twenty-eight thousand. Oh, you you read it? Yeah, I must. Have. <laughs> ah, Bob, what is it? It's the uh. dragonfly. Twenty-eight thousand pixels. Hmm. Which is pretty good, you know. You think you know twenty twenty eight thousand pixels is yeah, that's uh, that's high res, dude. It's not too bad. It's not high res. I mean, you think about a one megapixel camera, you know, is well high res for a fly. Yeah, for a fly, it's pretty good. 
It's pretty uh, fly for a flag. You're pretty fly for a white guy. But it's good. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's that a, one. It's HD for a fly. That's, that's science. So, let's go to number Three, two, one. one. Yes. Yes. A recent oh, extensive DNA analysis of coconuts <laughs> indicates that um, all modern cultivated coconuts derive from a single ancestral variety located in Indonesia. Totaled. Jay, you're by yourself and thinking yeah. that this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks yeah. that this one is science, and right. this one is the fiction. Whoa! Oh, Jay! Jay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, well Jay. Done. Way to smell it. Up. It paid off! None of a bitch. Uh, so there of was, course it's right. There was an extensive <laughs> DNA analysis of coconuts. And the researchers who set out to do this thought that, yeah, you know, with all of the um, you know, shipping of coconuts around the world, that they were expecting to find that it was just a, what they called a mishmash, right? That the, the genes were so mixed up among all the coconuts from around the world that you weren't going to be able to tell much. But actually – they were able to discover a few very interesting things. The pattern and the history of the movement of coconuts around the world was much more preserved than they had thought. One of the surprising things was that coconuts, even though um, they were thought of as a the, the, the cultivated form of coconuts, was thought of as a single cultivar. That in fact, there are two distinct types of coconuts in the world, you know, in terms of the, again, the cultivated kind, not wild coconuts. And uh, there's a Pacific variety and there is a Indian Ocean derived variety. And that they, they, they think that they're distinct enough that they probably were actually cultivated completely separately, not that they share a common cultivated ancestor. So they're very distinct. There's one, one type of coconut is more triangular and long. The other one is more rounded and has more of the sweet water in it. And the names are Niu Kafa and Niu Vai are the Samoan names for the two varieties of coconut. Cool. Coconuts. Surprising. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, who knew? Yeah. Not me. I'm allergic to uh, so. Which means that a new study finds that wars have been increasing steadily over the last century by 2% per year on average is very depressing science. I knew it. <laughs> not, not enough to guess it. Though. No, I didn't. <laughs> this was research done by the University of Warwick at, and Humboldt University. And they looked at I mean, of course, you come up with some criteria for what, you, what counts as a war. As long as you apply those criteria consistently you know, over the time period, then you can – Compare apples to apples, right? And they found, you know, the, the graph goes up and down, of course, but there is a fairly steady increase uh, over time, and it averages out to 2% per year. Now, they say that the two main reasons for this increase population uh, growth. And, and Jay, actually, your entire science or fiction analysis, analysis this week was uncharacteristically cogent for you. Ha! <laughs> You did a good job. That's called a backhanded. What the hell is that? The, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> yeah, really. By the back of his hand. That's how you take that. That was a wait. Wait. Remind Jay. me of what? What did I say that was correct? Just so I could. Well, I mean, you you got the you said there's something definitely fishy about the whole coconut thing going back to just one variety that was correct and and, and with and, the wars, uh, your analysis of the wars matched pretty much right. what these guys said. Yeah, that uh, humans are tribal and warlike but the two factors and you actually Ian, did hit upon one of the factors you know, that we're getting better at making war and they said that the the cost of of 
waging war has come down. You know, we're just it's just economics. It's you can get weapons cheaper, you can wage war more cheaply than than it, in relative terms than it used to cost and and that therefore lowered the lowered the bar, lowered the threshold, the economic threshold for waging war. But also, interestingly, they said there are there's a lot more borders among countries. That's true. So I guess there's there's just more political borders. There's more borders to fight over, I guess. So that also is contributing to the steady increase in the number of wars. You know, my vague feelings suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, except when they don't, right? It's like when they're right, you're like, I knew it. And when they're wrong, you have some excuse. But (laughs) confirmate. You're right, it is, it's true, but you but it doesn't stop you from thinking that there was something to your vague feeling when it when it just happened by chance to be correct. And it's not gonna stop you in the future. You won't calculate you won't figure that in your calculations. Right. So you gotta go by something sometimes. Yeah, if you don't know, you don't know. You just gotta go by what feels right, what makes sense. Uh, so Jay, the sole victor this week. Good job. Well done, Jay. Thank you all. Brava. Thank you. (laughs) Three weeks in a row. Is that supposed to be some kind of an insult, Bob? Y- yeah, what was that? <laughs> you what? Are you insulting him because it's, uh, it's an it? insult to be a woman? You because insulted I, both you Jay and all women at the same time. Yeah, well I, done. You know, I was hoping nobody would notice, but hey, Good whatever. Way to I, be a sore I, loser. I, I, thought it was, that I, was, I thought it was I thought it was. a nice subtle dig. That reminds me of a, of a SpongeBob episode where SpongeBob is training <laughs> his, his snail <laughs> For a race, <laughs> and he calls him. You know, he refers to this. It was more than one snail he was training. He calls them ladies, and he says, "I call you ladies because it's demeaning." Right? Then <laughs> Sandy, the the female and token mammal character on the show, <laughs> token mammal. Just, she's a squirrel. Um, like, but she lives in the ocean. She lives in the ocean. She always has an air a squirrel helmet on in an air dome. Yeah, she's in an air dome. Come on, they don't. They don't totally break all the laws like, of physics. Suddenly realizes that for some reason she needs to, to kick SpongeBob's ass the next time she sees him. Steve, I have a quote <laughs> for this week. Do you? Do you? I'm, I'm shocked. shocked. This quote uh, was sent in by a listener and then came recommended by Evan. It's true. It came with my recommendation. Your endorsement? And, bless- and blessing. So this quote was sent in by Peter McCulley. McCulley. And Peter is from Auckland, New Zealand. What's that? What, what, Rebecca? Nothing. Go on. What? You don't like Irish accents? Is that what that that was? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. And you said he's from Auckland. His name is Peter McCulley, and he's from Auckland, New Zealand. Peter McCulley. Auckland, New Zealand. This is a quote from one of my absolute favorite people of the past, Winston Churchill. Yeah. If the human race wishes to have a prolonged and indefinite period of material prosperity, they have only got to behave in a peaceful and helpful way toward one another, and science will do for them all they wish and more than they can dream. Winston Churchill! Now, you know what the contemporary version of that quote is. No, apparently not. No. It is. It is. Science works, bitches. Uh, (laughs) I believe in science. It works, bitches. Yeah, that's that. If Winston Churchill were alive today, that's what he would say. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. (laughs) Sure. Bye. Hey, good night. Good night. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.